Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Memories Feel like a disease Or some kind of bad infection Spreading in all directions Just memories As far as my mind can see I don't want the good with the bad Why can't this be the only time I've ever had? So, I don't know, quite a few years ago, I was working on a book about my family and I was in Ireland and... I found a local priest in the town of Mount Nugent, which is close to absolutely nothing, and he started rummaging around. He was a very colorful guy. He started rummaging around in all of his stuff, <laughs> all the stuff they have there in the parish. And at a certain point, he looked at me, and he, he looked up at me and he said, you took soup? And I said, what does that mean? He goes, yeah, your family, they took soup? So I still didn't know what that meant. What it meant was, during the famine, uh, the the local Protestant establishment would, in fact, give soup to, to, in other words, feed starving Irish Catholic families if they were willing to convert and begin attending a Protestant church. And apparently, my family did that. And, it, you know, I mean, it was a famine, but, <laughs> but it's still a little bit of a mark of, well, you backed it down. Uh, and... I mean, it didn't really bother me very much. The way that I look at the people in the past in our family, it's not like I could have gotten them into counseling or something. There's nothing you can do about people you've never met who lived before you were born. But not everybody feels that way, and people deal with this in lots of different ways. And a while back, just before the movie Oppenheimer came out, we got the following voicemail. Hi, Colin. My name's Jenny Strauss. We recently, you know, found out that uh, someone from our recent family history, my great-grandfather, Louis Strauss, who until now was a pretty obscure figure in American political history, is going to be played by Robert Downey Jr. as the anti-hero in his new movie, Oppenheimer. And it's sparked a lot of really interesting family conversations about, you know, grappling with the sins of the father and how we view our ancestors as whole, complicated people, and what part of that is still our responsibility if they did something that we don't approve of, such as dropping atomic bombs. And I just feel like you're the person who would want to dig into this. So we'd love to chat with you. We're open to learning something about ourselves and probably other people who, you know, might have a Nazi great-grandpa hiding back there somewhere. And we were fascinated. We were just completely fascinated. I couldn't wait to see Oppenheimer anyway. Now I had a whole other reason for wanting to see it. Now you're going to meet uh, Jenny Strauss. I almost said it wrong because of a problem that comes up in the movie. Jenny Strauss is the great-granddaughter of Louis Strauss, uh, and she is with us right now. First of all, thank you so much for joining our show and getting us started on this whole idea of how you deal with things uh, about your ancestors that you may be less than comfortable with. Thank you so much for bringing up this topic. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So as the voicemail suggests, going into the movie, haven't seen the movie, but you're starting to get rumbles, rumblings, whispers, 
And and so can you just say a little bit about, I mean, how did your family begin talking pre-movie screening? How did you begin talking about this? What what Could you say a little bit more about how much of a concern it was? Yeah. So I'm not sure it was so much of a concern. I mean, at first we assumed it would be a very small part, um, but then, you know, it's Robert Downey Jr. So how small could it really be? And we just sort of started grappling with, you know, would they make him look like a bad guy? Uh, would that necessarily be our problem if they did? You know, how would it reflect on us? How would we feel the need to defend, you know, our our family or ourselves because of that connection? And it just turned into some really interesting dinnertime conversations about, you know, where you where you put that feeling of things from your past that you had no control over, but might have some responsibility for. Yeah, no, you, that's a great way to put it. And I don't even know my great grandfather's names. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know how many. I mean, did you have sort of an idea based on just oral family history that maybe at minimum this was a person who was involved in some real conflicts, uh, didn't get always get along with everybody. Um, and, and I mean, you know, I just read the New York Times, though, but there's there's sort of a sense there that he got caught up uh, in a somewhat acrimonious environment in the post-war environment. Was, was any of that part of the family oral tradition? Oh, definitely. I mean, he died before I was born, but I have quite a lot of secondhand memories over the years. And you know, frankly, I've benefited from his successes um, in some obvious ways. But he was generally known to be an, an arrogant and politically motivated person. Um, but he was pretty brilliant from in that game. You know, he went from a shoe salesman to the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, um, you know, as a Jew from West Virginia, no less. Um, but he was a whole person. Yeah, he he raised Angus cattle. He loved dogs. He had all these relationships with monarchs and scientists and, you know, aside from the story told in this movie, there's many other stories. And we just have to remember that this is Hollywood. They're not telling the whole picture of the person. And he was a great politician. So this movie has chosen to focus on this instance of, you know, self-promotion at the expense of another public figure. So we just have to make sure, you know, again, from the movie, though, Oppenheimer probably didn't poison an apple, you know. <laughs> so we just have to make sure that we're looking at this uh, as, as a snapshot and as one that's meant to sell movie tickets. Yeah, no, and so we should just say for people who haven't seen the movie or who don't know, Admiral Louis Strauss was chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, helped shape the nuclear policy of the United States post-war, got into this, got interested in it partly as I understand it because his own parents had died uh, of cancer and he understood that radiation was part of the way that cancer was was now being treated, um, appointed acting Secretary of Commerce by Eisenhower and then the Senate. Well, I shouldn't say what happened because it's like, I guess it's... It's a thing in the movie, so I won't stop our story there. Um, but yeah, there is this sense, and to the extent that he, I mean, he's a major character in the movie. He really has the second largest role in the movie. It's in a way the movie shows Oppenheimer and Strauss, which is how he pronounced his name, um, moving on sort of parallel tracks, but also on a collision course. And I think some of the tension, a lot of the tension in real life and in the movie is that Oppenheimer has come to have some real second thoughts about what he has created, uh, and he's not eager to see an even more powerful version of the atomic bomb, a hydrogen bomb, created and and does not particularly relish the idea of an arms race with the Soviet Union. Uh, And Strauss is more convinced that that's what what needs to be done. That's how you become safe. Uh, You have as big a a boom boom as the other person has. And, you know, I mean, when it's set up that way, <laughs> it, it, there's it's going to be probably the case 
that your great-grandfather comes off as somewhat less sympathetic, although this isn't really a movie about heroes and villains. But, you know, I guess there is that, and it is kind of true, right? Uh, yep. It absolutely can be said that in the context of this movie, he he is the anti-hero. Um, and I like the way that you set it up. You know that Oppenheimer came to regret his decisions, but you know he was a, a grown adult who also made his own decisions, just like Lewis did. You know he made the decision whether or not you believe he did it to hand over that file, and it came back to bite him, just like Oppenheimer's decision did. So I I really appreciate how the movie sort of examined that you know human aspect and that and that cycle of action and regret. I think it was really well done. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, this is a movie that's made by, first of all, based on a book by by Kai Bird and, and the other guy, and it's, you know, obviously a pretty sophisticated effort trying to tell a story. And then Nolan is, you know, whatever his failings and flaws might be, he is somebody who thinks pretty deeply about stuff. And then I, I sort of feel like, and I don't know how you guys feel about it, that having Robert Downey Jr. play this role um, was important. He he has said in interviews, I also relate to for reasons in a part of my life uh, that I don't discuss with the press, the recovery stuff, the amount of service that was involved in Strauss's life and the dedication to an ideal. There, there's always going to be variances in opinion, but I had an easy time making a case for why this individual was right. I mean, he was playing your great-grandfather as a person who had a, a very good idea and a strong set of principles and and that's what drives him as opposed to just being some kind of boilerplate villain, right? And I don't know how you guys thought after you felt after you saw the movie, but it seems to me that was helpful. Oh, I, I hadn't heard that quote. I think that that's, you know, really sort of makes me glow a little bit inside because my in my entire, you know, childhood, we were told that this was because he was patriotic because, you know, he really did have reason to believe that Oppenheimer had communist sympathies and that he may have been a threat to national security. And it was his duty as an American politician to, you know, retract his security clearance. So at the time, it might not have been personal. Whether or not he went about it in a in a vindictive way is sort of a different conversation. But, you know, maybe at the time he thought he was doing the right thing. Maybe he got carried away in the McCarthyism of the era and just took it a little too far. Yeah. And I mean, I was thinking about something you said earlier in our conversation, and one thing I would like to say is that uh, if you lined up everybody with a major powerful position in Washington during almost any era, you know, in the 20th century or beyond, and said, all right, everybody who isn't egotistical and a little bit conniving in order to get ahead, please step out of line, there'd be nobody left in line, uh, or there'd be almost <laughs> nobody left in line. I mean, this, this is how you survive in this particular environment. It's not a nice place. Uh, it doesn't, the Jimmy Carters of the world tend not to do all that well in it. So I'm just also wondering, did every Everybody pile into a minivan and just go up to see Oppenheimer? I mean, was this kind of like a family outing or how did you handle watching the movie? Oh, we 100% all saw it as soon as we possibly could. Um, no minivans in this particular instance. But yeah, I even took my in-laws who were visiting from Israel to go see it. Um, and they were quite, you know, blown away by the visuals of it. And we had, uh, again, you know, further conversations about, you know, how we as international people, as as citizens, as, you know, my best friend in high school is Japanese. Like, where do I put all of those things? And um, I'm just glad that I'm part of a, a family and a community that allows for that sort of intellectual exploration and conversation. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it brings us closer to be able to bond over these shared experiences of someone that 
like I said, I I never even met. Yeah, and just so we're clear, I mean, I think the Oppenheimer family has to have bigger conversations with the Japanese American community. Uh, Strauss is he kind of comes into the picture later. Yeah, I just well, I mean, and he also was a big part of the decision about where the bomb was, you know, dropped. Yeah. and he one of his contributions, and we have these letters, is that he would not allow it to be dropped on Kyoto, for example, because of all the religious significance of that place. Um, you know, his his initial suggestion was to drop it in the ocean to demonstrate its power. And as we know, that was all shot down. But that suggestion originated from Lewis. Right. I mean, I in college, a lot of that stuff had just been declassified. I went to college a long time ago. but um, and, and it wound up being a big research project for a group of us. And nobody comes off very well. <laughs> you know? I mean, just in terms of the conversations, I mean, MacArthur and Marshall are having conversations saying, you know, with the way conventional firebombing is going in Japan, if you really want to make a big splash and scare the Soviets or whatever it is you're doing with this bomb, you know, we're going to have to set aside some cities because they're just going to be gone the way things are going. And you think about that and the kind of the relative level of cynicism that's involved in that. Oh, let's have pick four cities and not destroy them until we can destroy them with this this other weapon. But, you know, it's a war. People's best instincts don't come out, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like your family. First of all, your family sounds amazing. The, the, the fact that you would be having that conversation and thinking of yourself as citizens of the world uh, and, and thinking about what all this means in a very interconnected context, I – uh, I I want to be out uh, having Chinese food with you guys or whatever it is you did after the movie. But I'm also thinking. So what what do you think ultimately? I mean, you heard me say at the beginning of this thing, the people in your past, they're they're not people that you could ever control. That <laughs> you don't have the option of making of helping them make better decisions or making sure they get a good upbringing. <laughs> it's kind of all out of your hands. So I don't know. In a way, it, it matters, but. It matters what your ancestors did, I guess. But how does it matter or why does it matter? You know what I'm asking? I do. I think that it matters because it inspires us in how we act, right? You you can take that initial reaction of defensiveness. It's like, oh, well, I didn't drop the bomb. Like, I didn't own slaves. Like, yeah, of course that's true. But are you going to participate in a system that allows that type of injustice to continue? Or are you going to stand up for what you know is right and what, like you said, need to teach your children is right? Are you going to vote with your dollars? Are you going to vote with your vote? You know, are you going to make your voice heard in a way that balances the world, I guess, in a slightly better way that maybe your DNA may have unbalanced it previously? Um, and I think that there's a difference between taking responsibility and taking inspiration. And that's sort of where our conversations have gone, right? Is like, what can we do that's extra good in order to make up for this other past thing that, again, wasn't my fault, but it was extra bad. It was, yeah, it was extra bad. I mean, you know, how much control he ever would have had over the worst of this stuff, I I don't really know. But you're right. It's an interesting thing to talk about. And I guess as, you know, younger, littler Strausses come into the world, is this an ongoing conversation that your family expects to have? Hey, you know, let me let's tell you about old Grandpa Lewis. It's complicated because there's a whole bunch of Lewis Strausses in your, in your family. Oh, yeah, there's it. a whole line of them. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, they all have cute nicknames. Oh, good. So, um, let's, like, yeah, let's, know, yeah, so what do you say to kids? I mean, is is there a particular thing or is this – let them? there's a movie you might want to watch someday, but let me tell you something first. How is that going to go? Yeah, I, I think that when it comes to the children, it's important to start with a sense of 
pride. I mean, there were a lot of accomplishments that this man had to his name. You know, he gets a good amount of credit for Belgium's successful recovery after World War II under the Marshall Plan, right? There's things that we can talk about from pride, and there's things that we can talk about from regret, and we need to present this person as somebody who had goals and fears and desires, just like you as a child have goals and fears and desires and you know, think about the long-term consequences of your actions. And yeah, I, I think we have a lot of pride and gratitude toward our ancestors as well, even if they have shadows in their life. So at the moment, my kids are three and six, so they won't be hearing about very much of this for a while. Um, but I'm happy to do an interview then once I sit them <laughs> down and dish the whole story. <laughs> I'll, I'll interview you anytime. You give great answers to things. So, you know, I mean, there is another shift that's here, okay? And it, it has less to do with the kind of self-examination, the rigorous self-examination that you're describing. But it's also, it's like, I don't know, two years ago, and for all of the years that preceded two years ago, if you were at a party and I don't know, somehow either your family came up or something, you might have said, yeah, you know, you know, Louis Strauss is the admiral who was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission. And people go, <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't care. Uh, and from now on, that's going to be different, right? If it ever does come up, uh, you'll be talking about somebody whom a lot of people have a mental picture of and maybe a kind of narrative in their own heads that just, I mean, movies are very powerful. Anything like that is very powerful. Um, so Definitely. And not to derail the conversation, but as when people think of me and my family, I would hope that they think of somebody as good looking as Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. Uh, yeah, you could just say, my great grandfather was Iron Man, all right? Top that. But uh, no, I don't know. Just say a little bit more about this. This is a thing that is no longer a kind of marginally interesting little tidbit about your family. It's kind of more of the popular conversation. Does that matter at all or, or does it not? Um, I mean, I'm not sure how much it matters. I haven't really considered that. I think that if we were the type of people who would want to take advantage of that, that situation, it might be, you know, something that mattered. But but I'm not sure really that that's a lens that we want on us. You know, I, I wouldn't mind the benefits of a few like red carpet invites that come <laughs> out of this. But, but you know, I, I do think that, again, it's just an opportunity to sort of preach on the values that we all believe in, um, you know, and take whatever limelight we might get, which, you know, right now is is you. <laughs> You're the limelight. Um, and yeah, just talk about how we want the world to be, you know, in the future. Well, yeah. So there's no like Louis Strauss beer cozies coming out or anything like that. You're not going to try to you know cash in on this. Uh, you're just not the kind of person. Uh, no, but that's a good idea. Yeah, maybe do a little <laughs> side gig. <laughs> so, well, first of all, I, I just want to thank you and to say if you have anything else that comes up in your life, please leave us another voicemail because uh, it's just so interesting to talk to somebody who who thinks about things the way that you do. Uh, and thank you for getting us started on this conversation as well, Jenny Strauss the great-granddaughter of Louis Strauss. So you're not like related to Barbie in any way, are you? <laughs> Absolutely not. All right. Uh, well, great to talk to you. Thank you, you Colin. Yes, thanks for joining us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I'm sorry to say that you don't know me I'm set in ways you never understood Each time I try to tell the ugly truth You always let it pass you by You said I'd never tell you a lie just because I could Did you really think I was a bad man? You always said that that should be my middle name don't know the half of it You don't know how that name fits You don't know my hidden shame Hidden shame, shame, shame That I can't get free From the blame and the torture and the misery Must it be my... So, reading the book Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and Reconciliation by our next guest, Maude Newton, I have to say... <laughs> putting the book down and looking up something about myself and I just really thought somebody just handed me this book because of what I've been thinking about really hard in a rather kind of crisis driven way for the last two weeks it was very disconcerting but a story came back to me that I think uh, is fitting and a fitting way to introduce you to Maud so when my son was I'm going to say five or six years old uh, he used to stay quite frequently with, with my parents whom he addressed at their request as Bob and Barbara which were their names uh, and he had been playing with a little toy gorilla. And uh, my then wife, his mom, had told him a little bit about the story of the idea of evolution uh, and, and what that has to do with gorillas and people and stuff like that uh, in the way that you would say it to a five-year-old. And so I didn't know about any of this. And uh, so that night, uh, I'm putting him to bed. I'm sitting with him on the side of the bed. And he says to me, and remember, Bob and Barbara are the names of my parents, and that's what he calls them. Apropos of nothing, just out of the blue, he says, you know, I come from monkeys, and Bob comes from monkeys, but Barbara doesn't come from monkeys. (laughs) And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And I said, well, where does Barbara come from? Who does Barbara come from? And he said, she comes from pilgrims. Uh, and that is very much a, a pretty good <laughs> – that's that's a nice index for my mother. That's exactly the way my mother would see things. Uh, my father was from Irish stock. Uh, it's a very complicated and typically Irish tragicomic story, probably more tragic than comic. And she was from Yankee stock and very proud of various you know founding relatives and stuff like that. So – I, this is a way of getting us to Maude Newton's remarkable book. It's either a remarkable book or it was just handed to exactly the right person a very short while ago. It could be one or the other. Uh, but yes, the book's called Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and Reconciliation, and she is joining us now. Hi, Maude. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me. So there's so much to say about the book, and, and I w- want to talk a lot about it. But I also know that you just listened uh, to Jenny Strauss, uh, and you also just saw Oppenheimer. So I, let's strike while the iron or atom is hot. Uh, and uh, just give me some of your thoughts about this. This is a whole area where you've been kind of living for a long time. What did Jenny make you think about? I completely agree with Jenny that um, when our ancestors did really harmful things that continue to reverberate in the present, as my ancestors did and as her great-grandfather did, um, you know, it can really be important to sort of reflect on that and think about how we want to show up in the world um, in response to that. So, um, yeah, I know that a lot of people like you can, you know, as you described in the interview, can sort of think of ancestors as being people who lived a really long time ago. We don't have a lot of responsibility for what they did. And I think because of the way I was raised, that wasn't really a possibility for me, um, for better or worse. And I would say it, you know, I consider it to be for the better, ultimately. Um, But yeah, so I was really, um, I found it really heartening that Jenny Strauss was thinking about, you know, how her great-grandfather's actions might want to, or or how she might want to live in the world differently as a result of them. Right. And I just want to say, not by way of taking myself off the hook at all, but I recorded the interview with Jenny on Tuesday. uh, And between then and now uh, came A, your book, and B, just by chance, a 90-minute therapy session with my ex-wife yesterday talking about sort of things in our families and how they led us up to this certain point that we're at right now. Um, and <laughs> and so I'm a changed man, Maude. I'm very, very open, actually, to the, the process that you describe in the book. And I think it's remarkable and interesting. And I'll even buy into some of the Jung stuff. Um, but let's get let's talk about you for just a second here. So this reckoning and reconciliation, this includes everything from your father, uh, who's within arm's reach, sort of, you know, uh, the way fathers tend to be, uh, although you might not choose to reach out your arms to him for reasons you're about to explain, and all, but all the way back, all the way back, I mean, you know, at least all the way back to uh, people who were among the first to interact with Native Americans, with indigenous peoples here in New England and stuff that they did, and certainly, you know, close a little bit closer, people who had slaves. And well, but maybe just start. I, I feel like these things are all a little bit different. But maybe just start with your immediate family and and maybe your father, because you begin the book with him. Yeah, absolutely. So, my father is the reason that I didn't have that ability to kind of be unaware of what my ancestors did. Um, my father grew up partly in the Mississippi Delta and partly on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, but his people, um, my ancestors through him were in the Mississippi Delta and before that um, in different parts of the South and they enslaved black people. And that was something that my father was explicitly really positive about. He viewed this as a really um, important and admirable heritage and he explicitly defended slavery and 
felt that it should never have been discontinued. I was growing up in Miami uh, in the 70s and 80s, so it's fair to say that while Miami definitely has its racial challenges, he was really out of step um, with the vibe down there. So really early on, um, I realized that I didn't agree with him and I wasn't able to just sort of unknow these facts about my family because they were so front and center because of him. Right. I don't know how close you fo- closely you've been following the news lately, but there's some people in Florida these days who are, you know, not necessarily all that far apart from your father and what they're even willing to teach children about slavery. So, um, absolutely. And you know, that's I think that underscores for me that movement of not teaching histories that make people uncomfortable um, sort of underscores the importance of being transparent, um, you know, with our children and more broadly about these histories, because if we can personalize them, you know, if we can say, well, my ancestors did this, then we're kind of outside of that place where we're lecturing about a theoretical historical event. And we're saying, I speak from this historical experience that's very intimate for me. Yeah, I mean, and I, well, let's even mention the Jung thing because it's really it's really kind of interesting. I mean, he, he basically, you cite him as kind of basically arguing that these things stay with us in some form uh, and that, uh, ultimately, we we carry them, you know, in, in that in Jung's case, almost kind of quasi mystical way. Uh, we carry these stories, and if we don't resolve them, that's a problem for us, right? That there's a way in which one of our jobs, if if we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a human being, what are we doing here on Earth, one of our jobs really is to look at all this unfinished business. Yeah, absolutely. That's. Um something that I've found really powerful in Jung's work, this notion that we can't really escape these things. Um, We might think we can, but if we don't sort of face them and feel our way into them and, you know, reflect on how we want to show up as a result of them, then we're, we're sort of doomed to, Um, repeat some of the same kind of problems in one way or another. I mean, obviously, if I, um, you know, weren't committed to being transparent about my family history, I probably wouldn't be enslaving people in this day and age. But, you know, there, there would be other ways maybe that I could be contributing to a lot of the um, systems that you know, that we've been learning more about, particularly since George Floyd's death in 2020. And there are other more deeply personal ways in which reckoning with the past, I mean, we're all kind of saying all the time, whether we know it or not, who am I? What does it mean to be me? You know, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be this person that I am? Uh, And your book is, you know, pretty... Uh, tough on on that, and you're kind of tough on yourself and your 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 forebears. But some of this stuff is recent enough to really contribute to your identity. I mean, we get to meet your, I think, maternal grandfather Robert. Um, tell us a little bit about him. He had a somewhat unusual <laughs> yeah. approach to marriage. Absolutely. So yes, my mother's father was said to have been married thirteen times. Um, 
I have found a mere uh, nine marriages, or rather 10 marriages to nine women. So, um, you know, but as anyone who does genealogical research um, knows, things are constantly being digitized. So I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately I do get to 13 with Robert. Um, and he was also shot in the stomach by one of his wives, which was something my mother, um, a Texan woman, fond of tall tales that turn out to be true, um, had just mentioned in an offhand way at one point. And I happened to find a record of this in the Dallas Morning News. So, I mean, there's so much more that I want to ask you about, but I guess I would be remiss if I did not point out that your uh, name given at birth was not Maud and that you chose Maud, uh, a, fam- a family name, uh, as a kind of nom de plume or, or whatever we, we want to call it, uh, and then got to know the other Maud Newton. And that got very complicated. Yes. So um, I was fascinated by Maud Newton, who spelled her name with an E at the end, and I don't. Um, but I my father's family was always very reluctant to talk about her. And um, eventually I found a newspaper article um, where in her 80s, she became a car dealer in in the Mississippi Delta. And so uh, she just seemed like such a personality in that newspaper article. And I thought, oh, great, you know, here's someone who's just really kind of a force doing her own thing, defying the systems. And then I discovered that the University of Mississippi had an archive of newspaper articles that she had written um, in the 60s and 70s. And a researcher went through those for me and sent them to me and I was very disappointed. I discovered that what she had written um, was really racist. Uh, Not all of it, but, you know, that she was um, very opposed to desegregation and all of the things that um, were right-wing, you know, talking points in the Mississippi Delta at that point. So that was really disappointing. But on the other hand, in a way, you know, as as you know, from sort of making your way through the book, um, my own sort of exploration of this is on the one hand, very empirical. And on the other hand, I, like Jung, have moved in a really mystical direction about all of this. And so in a way, I view my taking of her name as just one more indication that I'm on the right path, that I'm doing the right thing. Right. I mean... You seem pretty ruthlessly honest about everything. <laughs> ruthlessly is the wrong word, but uh, rigorously honest. Let's put it that way. Uh, and and the other mod is kind of the opposite. She's kind of those one of those, you know. I, I I don't know which is worse: the person who's just kind of openly racist and unapologetic about it, or the person who's trying to convince you that they're not racist while they're kind of espousing <laughs> racist sentiments. And she seems to be that latter kind of person who sometimes is a little bit harder to digest. She lacks your honesty. Yes, I I think that's true. Um, And I think that a lot of times people who are really objectively racist have all kinds of reasons um, that they would give for why they're not racist. 
you know, so it's, it's a little bit of a gray area there, but yeah, she absolutely, I found um, an article in which she was reminiscing fondly about someone who had worked for my great grandmother's uh, boarding house as a, as a porter, uh, a black man who had moved to Chicago. And she mentioned that he sent some sort of annual, um, gift every year that was sort of a reflection of his new life in Chicago. And she viewed this as a sign of continuing friendship. And I thought that was kind of a funny way to interpret uh, this gift that was a sort of indication of how well he was doing now uh, right. in Illinois. Uh, um, all right. So uh, before we go to a break here, I want to sort of visit one more ancestor. And this one goes... I guess nine generations back, um, and I also want to tell you what what your book did to me, uh, <laughs> kind of as a result of this story. But briefly, so a lot of this book takes place in the South, uh, hence slaves. Um, but some of it takes place not too far from where I'm sitting, uh, about probably about a 40, 45 minute drive from where I'm sitting. Uh, your gr ninth great grandfather, Cornet Joseph Parsons, uh, was. Uh, a, a big deal uh, and uh, was important in kind of starting up trade with indigenous tribes, uh, but but more than that, too. Say a, say a little bit more uh, about I, I will say one of the reasons I told the story about my my mother and the monkeys and the pilgrims is that this is the kind of person people, if they don't want to look too hard, like to wave around. You know, there's a here in New England, there's my ancestors came over on the Mayflower kind of stuff that is worn as a badge of tremendous pride by certain kinds of people. And, and I think that's because they don't really, you know, put the magnifying glass up on some of these people. So tell us more about Cornette Joseph Parsons. Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, I was floored to discover that I had this New England history. And then I discovered that I am descended from Mary Bliss Parsons, the accused witch of Northampton, who survived uh, witchcraft charges before the Salem trials. And I thought, oh my God, how amazing that I'm descended from this person. How cool. And then over the years, as I have, as you said, either ruthlessly or rigorously researched my Southern family, I've thought, hmm, maybe I should look more deeply at this. And yeah, so I discovered that Joseph um, was really instrumental in um, coming up with trade deals with native people, the Agawam, the Nonatuck, and other people of what we now call um, Springfield and Northampton, Massachusetts. Um, and obviously those deals were unfair and exploitative. Later he was involved in what has often been called King Philip's War um, and actually killed um, a bunch of native people. And I discovered um, after publishing the hardcover of my book that at the end of her life, Mary Bliss Parsons was almost definitely enslaving a black man. Right. So um, let me just say this. 
Um, so, as I said, my mother's side of the family is sort of a, of a similar nature, and there are some genealogists in the family who have taken quite a bit of pride, including my mother, but also one of my aunts, uh, in locating, as one of our ancestors, a man named Thomas Wells, who was the fourth colonial governor of Connecticut. Um, and I've just... I've never cared about this um, one way or the other. And I, I, you know, you quote wonderfully uh, Emerson uh, as saying that he, he thought talking to a gene- genealogist was like sitting up with a corpse. Uh, I, I've sort of thought that, <laughs> that our, our job, our job is to be alive and do things now, you know, as opposed to thinking about, you know, who came before us. I just, I just didn't want to. Uh, and so... I didn't really pay too much attention. I'm aware of it. My middle name is Wells. Uh, so today I'm reading your book and I put it down and I think, what the hell? And so I look it up. I think it's possible that our ancestors may have ridden together against the Native Americans. Uh, Governor Thomas Wells, and you'll love this, Maud. Uh, we should get together for coffee. My grandfather, Thomas Wells, was a judge in a witchcraft trial in which resulted in the uh, the execution of, I think, four supposed witches. Um, and, and and he also did participate in, in certainly in wars against Native Americans. And I would have just kind of, I don't know, I, I, I just, I thank you actually for making me deal with this uh, because I am, I'm ready, I think, to sort of think about what this means and, and whether it means anything kind of existentially to me. So, um Anyway, with that, we're going to take a quick break. I'll stop talking about myself, I promise. Uh, and when we come back, uh, we have some other things to talk to Maude about. So lucky to have Kat Pastor uh, as our technical producer today in most days. And Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. And this episode is her baby. Uh, and she's done her usual fabulous job with it. I'm talking to Maude Newton right now, uh, the author of Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. Uh, before I go to Maude, uh, let's just, we actually asks, asked on the social medias uh, whether people had their own stories about this. Kat, this is going to be B1. Uh, this is a voicemail from a, a listener named Doug. So supposedly, and I'm not entirely clear about how far back in my timeline this was, I had a great or maybe even a great-great-grandfather who killed somebody in a knife fight over politics. I really don't know that much about what went down, except for the fact that supposedly it resulted in him fleeing the country and finding refuge here in the United States. And I suppose I've always felt pretty conflicted about this because I don't feel especially great about the idea that I've inherited the blood of a murderer, but that sequence of actions is what led to my existence here today. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, I just remind myself that in spite of what happened, I am my own person with my own will and his actions, whatever they may have been, do not define me. Well, that's a very Maude Newton sounding uh, voicemail. Do you want to respond to it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, I would say before we even get to the emotional content, I would just um, suggest to this listener that 
there is always a possibility that newspapers will have recorded more about the incident. So, um, you know, never, never overlook your Google book searches and newspaper archives if you want to try to find out more. But yeah, I mean, I think so many of us have these really heavy things in our background and uh, they can be really hard to sit with, you know, um, I've discovered a lot of really difficult things sort of, um, you know, around mental health in my family and all kinds of stuff, as you know, Colin. Um, and yeah, I think we have to have a lot of gentleness with ourselves around this stuff. Um, while also at the same time, ideally being willing to reflect on it and sit with it and sort of um, find those places in ourselves that might be reacting to it in a way that's preventing us from, from showing up the way that we want to in the world. And I know that's a little bit abstract, but, you know, I think we've all had the experience. Um, for example, you know, I'm a stepmom and my stepdaughter is 30 now. And when she was young, you know, some of the actions I took um, to try to you know, not replicate difficulties in my own childhood were just not things that would have worried her, you know? And I didn't realize that until I got older, that sort of the things that I was worried about and, and trying to sort of like gerrymander our visits around were just not things that, um, that would have triggered her in the same way. And luckily we've always had a really fantastic relationship but I look back on all the kind of angst that I felt around that and realize that, um, you know, if that there probably would have been better ways of, of trying to deal with some of those things. But, you know, something that you said earlier uh, in that answer uh, leads me to, and we only have five minutes left, tragically, but um, there is, I think, some implied obligation here. And and it made me think, you don't mention this story in your book, although you did talk to the very relevant uh, genealogist uh, for the show Finding Your Roots. Uh, that's the Henry Louis Gates show. And I'm sure you know this story, but if you, for those who don't, 2014-2015, Ben Affleck goes on the show, the actor Ben Affleck. It turns out, it looks like from DNA analysis, uh, he is genetically linked to a slave-owning ancestor named Benjamin Cole. Um, he didn't doesn't really feel great about that, uh, and he kind of suggests that maybe that could be cut out of the show. Gates decides to do that, and then it comes out later, I think, on WikiLeaks that that's happened, and it just caused this huge fuss. But I mean, I think a pretty interesting fuss too, right? I mean, it's kind of there's an implicit bargain, particularly if you're going to do a show like like Henry Louis Gates was doing, that you are not going to be amenable to people's desire to edit the, you know, the less attractive stuff out. I don't know what, say a little bit about how you, you look at all that. Yeah, I just, I was really disturbed by Ben Affleck's reaction to it. Um, and that was actually when I was starting to write my book in earnest, right around the time that was happening. I had had a piece in Harper's uh, and then, um, then that came out. And yeah, I think that that's, exactly the kind of avoidance that I'm talking about, where, you know, we're not taking responsibility 
for, you know, and again, what responsibility means is kind of a gray area, but we're not, we're not being transparent about these harms that our ancestors did, but we're continuing to benefit from the legacies of those harms. And just really quickly, you know, I, I think you know this from reading the book, but, you know, I was always very willing to look at this stuff on my father's side. And, um, and I felt kind of smug about it, honestly, and sort of, you know, really judged people who weren't willing to look at this stuff in their families. And then I found you know, these histories of enslavement and, you know, treatment of Native people that, you know, I'm sure genocide was involved and all these land deals that were completely exploitative. On my mother's side, which I had never expected to find, and I found them through my mother's mother, who was my beloved granny, you know, a very pull herself up by her bootstraps, kind of person who did grow up in in immense poverty and difficult circumstances but then i suddenly understood oh this is this is that feeling of resistance you know um <laughs> and i think it's really important to to recognize those feelings of resistance in ourselves you know sit with those and also be willing ultimately to to be transparent about this stuff. We have to stop there. Um, I have a whole bunch of other things to talk about. Uh, I will say, Ahmad Newton, that uh, reading the book, I was thinking that if I were to invite uh, you and Carl Jung over for dinner, one thing I would bring up is the story of Hansel and Gretel, which is a story about breadcrumbs, right, and trails of breadcrumbs. Uh, and we live in a world of trails of breadcrumbs. Uh, that's sort of what you said at the beginning of that answer. You know, if you if you want to know more. The breadcrumbs are often there. Uh, you can follow them or not. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, there's just ways in which I think you do a lovely job of explaining that you're probably not going to put this stuff to bed either. You're going to just live with it uh, and, and think about it and listen to other people talk about it. So it's it's a beautiful book and a beautiful sentiment. And uh, we're so happy to have you on the show today, along with Jenny. And we're going to go now. But yeah, the book's Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and, Re- and a Reconciliation. Don't read it right after a 90-minute therapy session would be my advice. Or maybe that's that's exactly when you should read it. Maud Newton. Twenty-one children came to be blessed. The old man's house in the wilderness. Doubt this story if you can. The great grandpappy was a busy man. 